First Timothy chapter one, verses one and two. And hear the word of the Lord. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God, our savior and of Christ Jesus, who is our hope to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy and peace from God, the father and Christ Jesus, our Lord. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your mercy. We thank you for the faith by which we hold on to your promise, by the faith that we are strengthened and preserved until the day of Christ. We pray that our faith would be deepened and widened and that you would give us understanding that we might live. So, Father, I now pray that whatever proceeds from this mouth that is not of you would fall to the floor and remain unheard. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Lord Jesus, you said heaven and earth may pass away, but your word will never pass away. So, Lord, would you speak today to us? Even now, would you bring your word to us in the power of your spirit? Father in heaven, speak. Your children are listening. Have mercy in the name of Christ. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, I think it was in the, is it, O Church Arise, when the saints of old lined the way. That Was that the third verse, fourth verse? Uh, that one always gets me. And the saints of old line the way. And we have this picture uh, where the, the authors of that hymn are, are sort of restating the great cloud of witnesses that we have rallying around us. Their testimonies surround us. We have the great figures that have gone on. We have the Augustans and the Spurgeons and the John Wesleys or whoever. We have these, these great figures, the Lottie Moons and the George Mueller's. We could go on and on and on. And we should turn, take lessons from these stories of people who ran the race before us. The church that arose in their day, in their hour, they were faithful to the gospel and they were faithful to Christ. But we also... We don't just have the rock star history. We have our personal ones. It might be your mother, your father, your aunt, your uncle, maybe some of your siblings or your Sunday school teacher as a child or your pastor. Uh, for me, when, I, when that verse every time and I'm, I'm not I don't intend I don't know it's coming. But every time it it plucks a string in my head and I think about my grandparents. I'm trying to, and I think about my grandfather. For those of you who don't know, my grandfather was a pastor. Uh, and so sometimes I feel like uh, he would get this more, more than other people. Um, and I, I, I think of him uh, in, in peace and with the presence of the Lord. But uh, for his part, uh, the one day that we will see anyways, I, I think of that often. Uh, that idea that we have received something from not just the great hall, uh, the hall of fame of Christian history, uh, there's no such thing, by the way. Uh, we just we've received our own testimonies. We have our own witnesses that have pat received something that was given to them and they have passed it to us. And if you're in Christ today, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, someone has given you the good deposit of the gospel. Someone has deposited in you the good news of Jesus. For some of you, you might have you simply got hold of a Bible and you began to read the Bible and the Lord by his spirit and his word brought you to faith and you were taught through the scriptures. And, uh, and that, that's but that's a rare occurrence where you simply learn, perhaps in prison or somewhere isolated. Uh, you learn independently of other people. But for many of us, we learned of the gospel. We learned what it was to follow Jesus in the context of other believers. 
Well, again, whether it be our family or whether it have been a local church, we received something. And what we have in the pastoral epistles, which are 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, uh, we have the Apostle Paul entrusting something or continuing to entrust something to his protégés, Timothy, Titus, but particularly Timothy. Timothy gets two letters. Poor Titus only gets one that we have. Uh, but Timothy is Paul's son in the faith. We see it in, even in verse 1, that, um, or to verse 2, to, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, that Paul is pouring into Timothy, extending the gospel ministry and extending the gospel reach through Timothy. So that what Paul received, right, what Paul received as an apostle, he received from the Lord Jesus himself. And Paul pours it into not just Timothy, but a whole myriad of people. But he pours that into Timothy. He entrusts it to Timothy so that Timothy may be able to entrust it to other people. We see this in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. What you have heard from me... Pass on to faithful men that they might be able to teach others also. We sort of see four generations of um, distribution of gospel truth there in 2 Timothy chapter 2. So why 1 Timothy? What is happening that we should... Because we'll be spending uh, quite a while here. A stretch of time. I'm going to keep it indefinite uh, because we don't know. know? Um, It won't be like Luke. Lord willing, I don't know, you know, for those of you who don't know, we spent a few years, two years in Luke, and then we took some years off of Luke, and then we finally finished, finished Luke. So hopefully it won't be like that. Um, but this is just to kind of unpack where we are. I want to I kind of deal with some nuts and bolts of uh, the letter, what sort of a broad overview of what's happening here, and then maybe a, p- a couple, point, couple things, and then maybe some applications for us as the Lord uh, allows. That's my plan. This would be introductory messages are typically different. So this is Paul the Apostle. You guys should be relatively familiar with him. Um, but Paul meets Timothy in Acts chapter 16 on his second missionary journey. So remember, Paul comes to faith on the road to Damascus. The Lord uh, raises him up as an apostle to sends him to the Gentiles. Apostle simply means at the base of it, it just simply means sent one. But Paul is commissioned by the Lord Jesus, right? He sees the ascended Lord on the road to Damascus and he receives a commissioning from Jesus himself as an apostle. And so uh, he's an apostle sent by Christ and he goes as an apostle. He goes on these what's called his missionary journeys. He goes uh, and they're they're from he's sent out from the church in Antioch. So if this is uh, this is the Mediterranean. Okay, imagine this oval. It's not quite an oval. Uh, And this over here is Israel. Antioch is a little bit up the coast. Uh, And so he's sent out from there. And Antioch becomes a great missionary sending church. And Paul and Barnabas go and then they they split up later. We're not going to get into all that right now. Uh, But Paul travels on missionary journeys where he basically makes these circuits. He goes into Asia Minor and eventually he presses into Greece and eventually he makes his way to Rome and, uh, and he, kinda, he always comes back. He boomerangs through the Mediterranean and the book of Acts has three missionary journeys. And it's on the second missionary journey that he goes through the city of Lystra. In Acts chapter 16, he meets 
he meets Timothy there. And Timothy is a son of a Gentile father and a Jewish mother. And we learn from 2 Timothy chapter 1 that Timothy's family, his, his, excuse me, his mom and his grandmother become sincere believers in Jesus Christ, who even before they came to know Christ, were teaching Timothy of the sacred scriptures. They were teaching Timothy the Bible, what we would know as the Old Testament, but they were teaching Timothy these things. And then when the Apostle Paul comes through with the gospel of Christ, the the Holy Spirit lights that fire and faith pours out of them. And Timothy is recommended to Paul by the elders of that city. And so Timothy becomes uh, basically adopted into the ministry by the Apostle Paul there in Acts chapter 16. Uh, and he becomes, he travels with Paul some, but then he becomes a, what, what might best be described as an apostolic emissary. Um, sometimes when we read the first and second Timothy and Titus, we want to make these dudes pastors, like off the bat. But that's not really exactly the role that they are filling. That they are extensions of Paul's apostolic ministry and that their role as they go into these cities is to help establish the church and usually to help up, help raise up pastors or elders in those towns. Uh, And we see that in Timothy and we see that very explicitly in Titus. Um, So what Timothy is sent to Thessalonica in first Thessalonians chapter three, he's sent to Corinth. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, and again, you see it in chapter 16, he's sent to Philippi in Philippians chapter 2, and here he is sent to the city of Ephesus. Okay, so he is an apostolic emissary. He is an extension of Paul's apostolic apostle ministry, and he's sent to help establish churches or to secure churches. Because the issue in Ephesus is that there had arisen, now Ephesus is a church that Paul plants. He he plants it. I believe it's on his third missionary journey in the book of Acts. He plants the church in Ephesus. But almost from the start, Ephesus is plagued by false teaching. Is plagued by false teaching. So much so that when Paul in Acts chapter 20 is on his way back, he's on his way to Jerusalem. He's bringing the the contribution of the churches that that are sent to relieve the poor needy in Judea. uh, That Paul stops by. Not in Ephesus, but he meets up with the the elders of the Ephesian church and he tells them then. He tells them then to beware that ravaging wolves would rise up even from within their very ranks. You can go read Acts chapter 20 saying, watch out. False teachers are going to rise up. And so this letter to Timothy written later is proof positive that what Paul predicted in Acts chapter 20 comes to pass. That he saw something that was happening even then in seed form in the church of Ephesus. He saw it in seed form and that seed sprouted by the time that he's sending Timothy down there to help straighten out the mess. That false teaching was going to rise up and false teaching did rise up. If you've read the book of Acts, which I assume some of you have, um, it ends with Paul imprisoned in Rome. That was not his final imprisonment in Rome, Um, but the evidence of the New Testament scholars help us see that Paul was probably released from that imprisonment, went on an unrecorded fourth missionary journey, uh, engaging some of the churches before he was arrested again and eventually martyred under Nero. And Nero died in 68 A.D. 
And I'm saying this because it helps us help clue us in on the date of First Timothy, that this letter was probably written in the early 60s AD. So it's between 62 and 64, probably Paul in maybe Macedonia uh, writes this on that fourth missionary journey. So he writes First Timothy on the fourth missionary journey and he writes Second Timothy on his final imprisonment in Rome. That's why Second Timothy has a very fine, final feel to it. I have run the race, right? Uh, that, that Paul has a very sure understanding that he is going to lose his life for the gospel by the time Second Timothy comes around. Uh, so Paul meets Timothy, recruits Timothy, trains Timothy, deploys Timothy, and he sends him into Ephesus. Um, he sends him into Ephesus. And to kind of come to the text... Um, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, I just want to recognize something uh, that the 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 type of apostle that Paul is, that there are no more of these. These apostles, you might call them capital A apostles, um, that the, these are the apostles like math. Um, yeah, Matthew, James, John, uh, they are the ones who saw the Lord Uh, resurrected and received a particular commission from him. And it's from the apostles and the apostolic witness that we have the New Testament. Uh, And so Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, he is sent of, he belongs to his apostolic ministry is an extension of Jesus's very ministry. And it is, he has received it of Christ according to the commandment of God. That his apostolic ministry, that he is sent, commissioned for a specific time, a specific building of the New Testament church. It is of Christ at the command of God. Paul is not a self-appointed apostle. He's not self-appointed. He did not declare himself Apostle Jim Bob. He did not declare himself Bishop Whatchamacallit. Okay? And this is a first clue about where we're going that you need to be aware of. Beware, and I've said this before. I think I said this when at Summer Sunday Nights of Praise when I when I preached at Hillcrest. But beware of self-appointed preachers. Beware of preachers who appoint themselves to the ministry and then sustain themselves in the ministry without any accountability to a local church. Or if they're an independent evangelist or traveling evangelist or they have their own sort of ministry, they need to have some sort of calling connection to the local church and then accountability. Okay, because there are too many self-appointed pastors. And and I dare say in our day and age, there are far too many self-appointed apostles. And if you ride down the street, I, don't, I mean, I can't think of any. I don't have anything in mind in Elgin, but I've seen it in Columbia. We're going to have the apostle so-and-so come. Now, sometimes this might just be a, a verbiage thing because the word apostle is used other places in the New Testament. Talk about those who are sent by the church churches. I call them lowercase a apostles. So you have the big ones. Uh, And then you have the ones who are sent by the churches. You have the ones who are sent by Jesus himself. And then you have the ones who are sent by the churches. All that might exist now, if we will, are those who are sent by the churches. And they might be best uh, uh, described by us as church planters or missionaries. Some will uh, disagree with me there, but that's okay. 
Uh, But Paul is according to the commandments of God so that his apostle position is one that is has derives its authority from God. It does not derive its authority from any other source. Again, because because false teaching will be at the center of the problem in Ephesus. Um, We need to understand at the outset that as Paul brings up this greeting, he might be poking some holes in the adversaries of the gospel who have appointed themselves as teachers of the law. If you're to read, continue reading in chapter one, they feel like they have a good grasp on things and they don't need anybody else to teach them anything because they have had this. God has told them something and therefore they are going to distribute it out to other people. Dear ones, that puts us on perilous ground. But because of the individualistic spirit of America, we have had the propensity a bent towards this kind of problem. Where pastors and preachers appoint themselves and then exist in spaces where they are not accountable to the local church at all. And that not only leads to theological and doctrinal ruin, but when you have theological and doctrinal ruin, it inevitably leads to moral ruin. And it leads to the devastation of churches, churches that are swallowed up in false teaching. And that was the danger in Ephesus. And Paul's solution, Paul's solution is for Timothy to come and not start another ministry, not start a 501c3, but to come and bolster the church. That the local church, the local church is the one who is tasked as the pillar and foundation of the truth. To uphold the tenets of the gospel and uphold the truth of God's word, even amongst and in and among the wolves of false teaching. And this is what when you're kind of what is the center of first Timothy? It's first Timothy chapter three, verse 15. And he says he's saying, I'm going to try to get there. But if I don't get there, Timothy, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself. In the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. I'm writing so that that you will know how one is supposed to operate in the church. And so the problem is false teaching. The solution is the exalted Christ and the gospel preached and lived in the context of the local church. And so first Timothy has a lot, the most information we have in the New Testament about the nature, the governance and the structure of the New Testament church. We have extended discussions about what it means to be an overseer or a bishop or a pastor in first Timothy chapter three. We have an extended discussion of the qualifications of deacons. We see that in chapter two, there is a a. Worship is at the center of the life of the church and calling men to pray. But then there's also the controversial portion of the end of chapter two about men and women and women in ministry. And we're going to get into all of that. That's that, that's not controversial in our day. Um, so we have again um, and then chapter three ends with this this wonderful creed of of Christology about Christ being the revelation of God in the flesh. 
vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels at the end of chapter 16. I mean, chapter three, verse 16, uh, he talks about the danger of apostasy. Those who come into the church and um, and then fall away from the faith in chapter four. And they, how to, how is Timothy supposed to live as a minister of the gospel? That is not just the ministry is not just about talents and giftings and ability. But if a man is devoid of character, then he ought not be in the ministry. I don't care how good a preacher you are. I don't care how flash and capable you are. Right. Too often churches fall for the charisma rather than the character. And we need steady, faithful men in every pulpit. And we need more of them to fill more pulpits of churches that have yet to be planted that are going to stake their lives upon the word of God and preach it without compromise. We see the the intent of the local church as not just as a pillar and a foundation of the truth, but in chapter five to take care of widows and the vulnerable. That there should be a particular outreach arm of the church to take care of those who are particularly vulnerable. Uh, and then finally, it closes with godliness and the danger of, the, of riches. The deceitful danger of riches. But again, Paul writes because the problem in Ephesus is false teaching and false teaching kills. False teaching kills. Dear one, if we get swallowed up in false teaching, it has eternal ruin. And I'm not talking that you have to have some systematic theology memorized in your head where you have an answer to every single question. But you should be staking your life upon the fundamentals of the Christian faith. That we have a triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one and three, three and one. That Jesus Christ is a hundred percent man and a hundred percent God. And he is the only mediator between God and man. That he is the only name given among men by which we may be saved. You have to hold to some very controversial things right now. Particularly in our day. And this is why I think 1 Timothy is so appropriate for us. So appropriate because it is written to a single man, Timothy, helping bolster a local church in the midst of a dangerous age. Where those who are claiming the name of Christ are actually pulling people away. Also at the time where there's great paganism in the city of Ephesus. Worship that is contrary to God. And dear ones, in our culture right now, in this place, we deal with both. And so the first order of business isn't just a whack-a-mole on the culture saying, here's the problem, here's the problem, here's the problem. Or on those other churches, here's the problem, here's the problem. Our first order of business is what Paul does at the very center of this book is to turn our eyes to Jesus. We have to be captivated by the truth of Christ, the beauty of Christ, and the very simple truths that are revealed even here in verse 1. That God is our Savior and Christ is our hope. And we could insert, now don't do it, it's not, in the, it's not in the Greek, but we could insert our only Savior and our only hope. He is not just the Savior of some people. Chapter 4. He's the Savior of anyone who's going to get saved. They're saved by God's power through the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's no other salvation, dear ones. There's no other deliverance. 
Not by yourself or some other entity or by culture, politics, education, whatever other salvation we might look to. They are faulty and they give way. But God is our savior. And oftentimes when we're talking about saviors, uh, what I have found and I had this revelation uh, revelation. Don't that's not right. I didn't have a revelation. It just came to my mind. Okay, I've been reading in the prophets and uh, that and it's and it's like just wrath, you know, all this all stuff in these parts of the prophets where God is heaping out judgment. And I was thinking about that message that someone like Jeremiah or Ezekiel is sharing with the people of uh, Israel or the people of Judah. And then I think about how some of the, the, the gospel presentations that are uh, are, are are sold. Uh, in our day and age, where, where what the, the message of Jeremiah and Ezekiel is flee from the wrath to come, which turns out is also in the New Testament, by the way, flee from the wrath to come that that our sin has us as children of wrath before God, that that's your fundamental problem. Sin is separating you from God. And so the rest of everything else is, is, is a wreck. But the, too often the gospel that is shared that that and I'm not going to I'm not trying to. There are things in my head that I'm not going to tell you yet. Maybe I'll get there one day. But they're but they're peddled as this is how you ought to share the gospel. And they are without any reference to the justice of God due to sin. And what I mean by that, it's like the message is here. Look at your brokenness. Look at how your life is. You have suffering in your life. Your, your job's a mess or your relationship's a mess or your. And that's all true. Don't get me wrong. I know y'all are a mess. Just kidding. But here's all your brokenness without any reference to the fact that you offended a holy God. All this brokenness is just a it's just a a, a tip of the iceberg. Of what awaits you if you're not reconciled to God. I'm not saying that those things shouldn't be talked about or there or that because I believe in every one of those instances, you have a, a, a fissure into the wall, a crack in the wall by which you can plant a gospel seed. But if our gospel never deals with the fact that you are, if you are outside of Christ, you have no shelter from the judgment due to your sin from a holy God. God is our savior because God has yielded up his only son for us. In our place. Do you get that? He's our savior because he supplied his son. And there at the cross, Jesus took, you know, yeah, he bore our infirmities, Isaiah 53, but he bore the wrath of God for us so that we might receive new life, freedom and peace, heaven, salvation, everything flowing from the fountain of the crucified Christ. God is our savior and Christ Jesus is our hope. It makes me think of uh, Hebrews chapter six. And this is just a a foundational uh, verse. Um, So talking about um, Christ and Christ has gone ahead and uh, in Hebrews chapter six, verse 19, this hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast. 
and one which enters within the veil, meaning that Christ has gone on ahead of us. He is our forerunner into glory where Christ has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. That, and understand, you know, an anchor is tied to a rope. And so Christ has been, he's been cast as the anchor into the sea of glory, if you will. And the anchor has caught root at the right hand of God the Father. And there is a rope leading now into this world, into this time. And dear one, it is the grace of God revealed to you in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if we are tied up in that rope, then we have a sure and steady hope, sure and steady, that where Christ is, we will be also. Christ is our hope. Unfailing, unfading, and cannot be disconnected from him. The final thing I want to say is about chapter two, I mean, chapter two, about verse two. To Timothy, my true true child in the faith. There is some disagreement as to whether Timothy was converted under Paul's ministry or whether he was converted uh, through other means. It doesn't really matter, but... Timothy became under the influence of Paul as, I guess the best way we could say it today is discipleship. He became a disciple of the Apostle Paul, so much so that he was described as his true child in the faith. And then he extends his, what looks to be his usual greeting, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Um, But Paul inserts mercy In 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, he inserts mercy where usually it's grace and peace, where he is sort of adopting a common letter greeting of the day, uh, and he's adopting it, and he he Christianizes it and says, grace to you and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord, that we receive grace and peace in Christ alone, but we also receive mercy. Grace, we receive that which we don't reserve, what don't deserve and mercy. We don't receive what we do reserve, deserve. Oh, my words aren't working. Grace, we receive what we don't deserve. Mercy, we don't receive what we do deserve. And because of that, we have peace. Jesus Christ is our peace. Amen. He gives us peace and before us and God. Where no longer we have a sure expectation of judgment and wrath. Rather, that has been replaced by fatherly affection and a tender care of our Lord, the shepherd. No longer are we at war within ourselves, but he has united our hearts that we might worship him, as the, the, the psalmist says. No longer are we at war trying to find our approval, find our way in this world, but we are at peace where the Lord has planted us with the family that the Lord has given us and the work that the Lord has given us, that he has given us a place to be and a work to do, knowing that it has kingdom significance. So I've I've kind of hinted at some applications along the way. Um, Why 1 Timothy 1? Because we need to be bolstered as a local church in these days to stand firm for the gospel of Jesus according to the word of God. Secondly, We need to order ourselves as a church so much as we can, according to the pattern of the New Testament. Now, we're doing that. We just want to look explicitly at it um, about leaders and uh, and about I'll throw it out about elders. We've had some conversations about that over the years. And so we're going to that's going to be addressed later on in this book. Um, Thirdly, the whole idea of discipleship runs through this letter. 
And so the question I would have for you, maybe Christian right now, do you have other than your children, children, and maybe they are, maybe that's it. That's cool. But do you have someone that you have brought alongside you that you're pouring your life into? Are you making disciples of Jesus? And it could be, I mean, we're called to disciple our children. Don't get me wrong. Sometimes you're like, are, are belts involved in that? <laughs> Just kidding. DSS. It's a joke. No belts. Um, but, you know, but you're called to disciple your children. And it's a whole life discipleship. But are there people that you're pouring into saying this is what it means to follow Jesus as a mother or a father or a grandmother or a grandfather or in the workplace to be a follower of Jesus and do your work well? That's a discipleship moment where you're able to showcase something and lead somebody else into that. But that's the question that I want us to have, because there might be relationships that exist here between someone who is older or more mature in the faith and someone who is less so and say, hey, can we enter into something that's a little bit more focused that, that you would help me grow along in these ways? Or if they're not in the church already, maybe there's somebody you know in your life that you already have a rapport with somebody that you know that you can you can bring under your wings, so to speak, and begin to teach them and train them and just pour into them. And it doesn't have to be always super formal, but say, hey, hey, go with me as I go do this thing. Go with me as I go do, you know, and so um, having people over at your home. Right. That's you might not think about that, but it, like for us, it's insanity. Right. OK. Come to the ball of yarn, plop yourself in the middle of it and try to find your way out. Okay, Um, but you're seeing this is what it looks like to try to follow Jesus in the hairy mess of life. You have four kids running around, baby screaming. You're trying to cook food and you're trying not to lose your mind. Right. Anyway, so um, but but having people into your home, extending hospitality and saying, this is how I order my business, how I order my life around Christ. All of those things are instructive. And so pray, pray that God would give you that person. Or that family, either in the church or someone that you're thinking of right now, that you might call them your, your true child in the faith. And it might just be for a season or it might be for a lifetime. But I look forward to this. I've been thinking about this message for, uh, for years, probably. Um, and so the question I have to ask beyond all of that, those applications is, is God your savior? Now, there there are two audiences. There are only two, there's only two ways you could receive that. Is God your savior? Either you're going to say, yes, of course, Jacob, that's a silly question. Uh, and then, okay, well, press into your life. Do you live like God is your savior? Or are you living with your assurance in the world, hoping that God will save you at the end? If you are, I, it's a, I promise you it's a better way to put, push all of your, we're not, no, we don't bet, but put all of your chips, maybe some of you do, put all of your chips, no judgment, I'm just using an illustration, you put all of your chips on Jesus. How many times do I have to nuance that? Okay, um, but you, you put, plant your life on Christ. So you're not trusting in your job. You're not trusting in your retirement. You're not trusting in your spouse or your house or America or whatever else that we might supplement as, well, everything's going to be okay because of this. That this has to be Jesus. God is your savior and Jesus is your hope. For some others of you, that might not be you. 
and you know explicitly right now that you have never surrendered your life to Christ, inwardly you have, you've never trusted him, you you lay no claim to Jesus, You you might not think you need to be saved or you recognize that right now, outside of Christ, that you have a fearful expectation of judgment and your life is absolutely a wreck. You have no peace. You're disturbed and you're bothered all the time. And what I want to say to you is that it doesn't have to stay that way. It does not have to stay that way, that God is your savior. Christ is your hope if you would but come and yield your life to him. The invitation of Jesus is come to me, all you who are weary, and I will give you rest. So as we sing, respond. You could respond in your seat before the Lord. If you want me to pray with you, I'd be happy to. Um, but respond as God would have you. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we thank you. We thank you that God, you are our savior. Jesus, you are our hope and that you have applied the treasure of the gospel to our hearts by the spirit. And Lord, we ask now that your spirit would move in power to bring out the results, the work that you would rend and rot, bring out the fruit Uh, that you would have work in our souls as your word has been heard in our ears. Help us to respond in faith. Help us to respond in obedience. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.